This is Monster Manual Mash. I'm Chris. And I'm Wes. This is the podcast where we dig in to the 5th edition Dungeons and Dragons Monster Manual. And we dissect every entry. We look at how the text of the game directly or indirectly suggests how you use each monster. uh, What psychological or symbolic niche each of them occupy. Uh, where they come from in literature and myth and lore and religion and wherever else, the bizarre imaginations of a bunch of dudes in their basements in the 80s and 70s, and what you can do with them to mess with them to enhance your own game. Except this episode, uh, we're not doing any of that at (laughs) all. Today is a special episode. It is special not only because it's the first one we've recorded in like two or three months, Uh, but also because we are shelving the Monster Manual for the day to talk about another player class. Uh, Long ago, years ago, I think now, we did the Barbarian, and tonight we are going to talk about the Monk. We are not alphabetical. Uh, And to help us do this, we have a very exciting guest, whose Kung Fu power level is over 9,000. This is games publisher, writer, and designer James Kerr. Hello, James. You know, if you actually put me under the scope, I don't know if it would come up as 9,000. But uh, thank you. Thank you for thinking my power level is that. We'll fudge it, yeah. Uh, Hi, uh, (laughs) I'm James Kerr. We're fudging the dice and we're fudging (laughs) the power levels. I'm James Kerr of Radio James Games, and it's exciting to be here. I'm so pleased. I'm just uh, pleased to talk to you guys. And uh, yeah, yeah. let's, let's do this. Let's get into the get into it. the reason james is here for the monk is that james uh is the creator behind a new game currently being kickstarted it's already halfway funded it's only been a day and a bit it's called fight to survive which is a great title uh the tagline is role-playing martial arts meets heart uh both wes and i have known james for years and we've played in a lot of his games and i know that non-super powered fighting tournaments are kind of essential to knowing what you're about as a person (laughs) really do you think that's like the key to my heart it's not the it's not the key but it's definitely a a big key yeah maybe you know me better than i know myself Uh, it's it's been a few years um so i thought why not uh why not get some synergy why not tap tag team um to further both of our goals both for your game and our uh podcasting clout so uh, unfortunately, the next monster in the manual um, isn't about fist fighting. So we got to the most. So few of them are. I know. It's tri- kind of a, a blind spot, really. But monks can be villainous or monks can be heroic. Well, I have a lot to say about the D&D monk and I have a lot to say to shill my own stuff. So absolutely. At any point, feel free to uh, throw some trademark fight to survive content in there well i will just point out that fight to survive is live on kickstarter now and if you go to kickstarter and type in fight to survive you too can fund the fight (laughs) but before you spend any money please listen to the rest of this podcast no no go now now. okay i don't think they're mutually exclusive (laughs) i think you can do both yeah you can put it on in the background you know (laughs) yeah fists a blur deflecting incoming hails of arrows Springing over a barricade to attack masses of hobgoblins, whirling among them, knocking their blows aside, sending each of them reeling until she stands alone. A tattoo-covered human in a battle stance, which you will have to imagine. Pick your favorite. 
exhales and blasts of fire blast from its mouth. Blast of fire blast. Good stuff. Moving with the silence of the night, a black-clad halfling steps into a shadow beneath an archway and emerges from another inky shadow on a balcony a stone throws away, drawing a dagger and approaching a tyrant prince in his bed. So these are the three examples of monkishness that they give you. Um, they relate to the three uh, class, what are, mon- monastic traditions that you can pick later on in the class. They are, I think, the first one is trying to be this is this is a typical like kung fu movie scene one monk jumping into a fray fighting like a hundred i imagine i always think of not just in related to monks and dnd but i always think about this scene in daily life in legend of drunken master when jackie chan fights the the axe gang i mean I think that that description is probably closer to Jet Li's hero from 2002. Okay, yeah. You know, the... fighting, fighting swarms and swords of enemies and deflecting the arrows. But, uh, uh, and, you know, I don't want to bogart your, your explanation here, but, like, it sounds like that version of the monk is more based on previous versions of the monk in D&D. And the first monk that I'm familiar with in D&D, although it may have been released as a splat book, was in first edition, the first edition uh, uh, player's guide. And that monk was just flat out Kwai Chang Kane, oh, okay. yeah. character from from Kung Fu, <laughs> just like just like the early barbarian is just it just is Conan. Uh, mm-hmm. The early monk just is like wandering Kwai Chang Kane and it, literally they just cherry picked powers from the show. So uh, it, I, I think it's interesting that the monk has evolved beyond that, that there's more than just that monk now. Uh, but I think that's probably I think that's probably the monk they're trying to maintain is the legacy monk as the one. Uh, option that makes a lot of sense because the uh the way like that singular television show when there are only like maybe 50 television shows going on in the world uh that's the monk that dude is the only monk that north americans know about well certainly in 1972 it was right yeah which is when a lot of this stuff was starting to germinate in people's heads and it would have been like like what five years later that D&D started getting ringed down? Uh-huh. So. Yeah. Well, I, I actually have... Um, I usually don't talk about, like, the, the history of the the entry until uh, after we've, like, gone through the oh, description sorry. of the book. See, this is exactly, it's no, exactly it's why I said I didn't want to bogart anything. Yeah, you've destroyed this podcast, and you've oh. uh, destroyed me personally. <laughs> but we can rebuild him. We have the technology. <laughs> But this this is good though because we can just, I'll just slot this in here because this is uh this is kind of hilarious. The monk character as a class was introduced in 1975's Blackmore supplement. Oh, I believe that was written by Brian Bloom, who I don't know much about, but he wrote a bunch of early D and D. Um, Shannon Applecline, the author of the Designers and Dragons series wrote that Brian Bloom is believed to have contributed to Blackmore primarily due to one statement by Gary Gygax in his foreword to Oriental Adventures written 10 years after the production of Blackmore. Gygax claimed that the monk character class was inspired by Brian Bloom and the book series called The Destroyer. Oh, really? Remo Williams? Remo Williams. Remo Williams. Have you seen Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins? Of course. Of course I've seen the movie, but it's... It's it's wretched. I mean, it's wonderfully wretched, but it's wretched. 
Yes. Uh, but the he's more well known for the book series, right? Of men's adventure fiction. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. 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 That's 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 the subline. That just sounds like weird. A, it sounds weird to say men's adventure would... fiction. Yeah. I feel like every day is men's adventure fiction. <laughs> well, every 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 day of privilege is men's adventure. <laughs> um, yeah, Remo Williams is a is a funny one because he does he dodges bullets and things, right? So yeah, um, I'm not familiar with the book series at all, but I have seen the film, and uh, I'd like to read the Wikipedia synopsis of the plot. <laughs> yeah, I agree. You know, it's it's <laughs> they're they're basically like a what if. Uh, all of a team was one guy and he knew kung fu yeah <laughs> which might i don't know if they're like it's probably just as cheesy in the book but the movie is just uh out of control so there's a a, a man named sam Mackin or Macon. he's a tough brooklyn new york city street cop and a vietnam era marine corps veteran he is unwillingly recruited as an assassin for a secret united states organization cure the recruitment is through a bizarre method. His death is faked, and he is given a new face and a new name. His new face looks like Fred Ward. Rechristened <laughs> Remo Williams after the name and location of the manufacturer of the bedpan in his hospital room. His, his face is surgically altered, and he is trained to be a human killing machine by his aged, derisive, and impassive Korean martial arts master, Chun. Chun is played by white person Joel Gray in a horrendous display of yellow face. Though Remo's training is extremely rushed by Chun's standards, Remo learns seemingly impossible skills such as dodging bullets, running on water. Uh, he also runs on wet cement. Chun teaches Remo the Korean martial arts named Shinanju. Remo's instruction is interrupted when he is sent by Cure to investigate a corrupt weapons procurement program within the U.S. Army. Uh, Cure is also uh, headed by Wilford Brimley, who he's in like 12 scenes, but he does not get up from his chair in any of them. My favorite part about Cure is that their superpower appears to be the Internet. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So if this is... The thing is, so uh, this is also funny because Gary Gygax, um, as we learned in the Drow episode, is also an unreliable narrator when it comes to his own reasons, his own uh, source material. So whether or not uh, the Destroyer pulp paperback series, including Remo Williams, the movie, uh, whether or not that's actually involved in the inspiration for the monk, we don't know. But there were a lot of a lot of trash in the in the air. At the time, so. The next thing that the book tells you, a monk, is, is that they have key. So this is a magical energy. Monks make careful study of it. Uh, The energy is an element of the magic that suffuses the multiverse, specifically the element that flows through living bodies. They harness this power to create magical effects that exceeds their bodies normal physical capabilities so this is the device by which a monk can like compete against magic users and people like fighters or barbarians who are really good at uh, hitting stuff it's its own system within D. like there's no attachment to the the spell casting system it exists outside of the normal uh, like weapons proficiency scheme or uh, like adding damage 
to conditions or whatever. It's its own thing. It's the only class that I think has like a a point pool that you can use to spend on stuff that represents the key. Basically a mana pool. Yeah. Well, I mean, the fact that it is counted as magical, it is incredibly useful. Uh, the fact that the monk's fists count as magical weapons and, and the fact that his unarmed combat could be any part of their body is like, I've had that come up in quite a few games, honestly, of D&D. I don't think I've ever played in a game with a monk. I played as a monk in a game that lasted for three years and went from level one to level 16. Okay, so you know the monk a little bit. Well, I know the monk in the edition at the time, which is like between third and three point five. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, uh, the yeah. So counting his magical weapons was a big was a big deal for trying to hit something that has damage reduction, except for magic, right? Yeah, like physical resistance, but magic will get through. It was a, it was. So how does how does the body part thing come up? Like, do people really want like insist on using their toes or something? No, but like if you're tied up or something and you want to like headbutt someone, it still counts as a magical weapon and like still does the the unarmed damage oh, okay that's that's uh i like that that's good um i can see that scene playing in a in a kung fu movie or something yeah but it also makes the monk uh, a little bit more versatile in terms of um like you know the fighter's got to reach for a sword but the monk can just you know, guy go to town like right away yeah and uh yeah which they kind of have to because i think in um in certainly the beginning of fifth edition um they the the word around town was that they just weren't as as powerful or robust as the other classes and yeah there were the, the monk and the ranger were trailing pretty far behind the rest of the uh the classes at least you know in terms of people who sit down and crunch those who numbers, care about I, that kind I, of it it's minutiae and like you know i'm not going to begrudge anybody their fun but like there is a game of dungeons and dragons that is just thinking about dungeons and dragons uh, and like, <laughs> that is true and, yeah and, and and like people like sitting down and trying to analyze you know how to get numbers higher and 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 you know some people have a lot of fun doing that i'm not you know judging that's all that's fine with me but uh what what really burns my onion and i'm talking to one of my players specifically is that through the podcast (laughs) yeah is that uh is is crunching those numbers i can see that being a game and a fun aspect of of the game um but when you just go on reddit and you look up the work of others and you you stand on the shoulders of giants um and just and just take it (laughs) (laughs) uh i mean if you this is like that's like looking up a cheat code on the internet exactly like yes you can't like if you're going to be a power gamer at least do your own homework at least do your own powering yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah but the monk like everything else has gotten so many in fifth edition so many different paths now that uh I'm, i'm sure some of them are are broken optimal uh but yeah yeah there's more all the time right yes definitely we don't really uh i haven't really dug into the new ones um so i'm not really sure but like that's that's the way of the splat right like that was the way of (laughs) is that one of the paths (laughs) (laughs) those are only for D &D nerd monks so the three of us and anyone listening to this are now high level splat monks so let's see how many official subclasses there are there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Wait. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. There are ten, ten? Oh monk my God. subclasses right now in official published material. Yeah. 
I mean, most of the, it bears mentioning that most of the subclasses for 5th edition are kind of recycled and refined content. And I say that without derision, yeah. but like mm-hmm. refined content from earlier editions that people f- fool around with for years in different spot books, right? Like, I'm sure there's a tattooed monk in there, you know, and I'm sure there's a, uh, like a, a an elementalist, like, bender in there. And I'm sure there's, like, I'm speaking from a position largely of ignorance <laughs> on, on, these, <laughs> on these paths, but like, um, but I think that's a good thing, like taking yeah. things that people have done for years and years and refining them to to make them, you know, make more sense within the structure of the system. I hesitate to say the word balance because that's it's a matter of play style sometimes. Absolutely. So it's hard yeah. to uh, it's it's difficult. It can be difficult to like gauge what that means. Like usually when people say balance, what they mean is balance for a combat encounter that's in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is which is not I, I think that's a false. uh yardstick to measure yourself by uh, but uh but for some people like because tournament play is a thing right mm-hmm. uh, for D. like for some people that's what they're after um i don't know i was hoping that branching the branching path structure for fifth edition would allow different play styles uh like you would have a, a kind of a, a branch that's for people who really want to power game and optimize and and like we're thinking of a combat arena type structure mm-hmm. or like a you know like room encounters like smash the door kill the orc get the treasure smash the door kill the orc and that there would be a more story heavy kind of path uh and that there would be a more you know what i mean like it, it just it did not work that way um but now yeah it really seemed like uh the the nuts and bolts of it is actually the kind of like least pursued publicly like the most popular th- aspect of it that i'm aware of um is like if you just look at what's popular streaming it's it's like story and acting mm-hmm. yeah it's 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 people that are good improv actors doing uh like actual play things like literally professional actors yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I I mean, it's funny that juxtaposition between what it's... But the thing is, it has to serve many masters. Like Mike Merles, when he was doing 5th edition, wrote extensively about how dissatisfied he was having to uh, cater to such a diverse and contradictory audience. uh, Because he had the legacy people that he couldn't tick off too badly, and he had, like, new gamers that he wanted to attract, and he had people... Because if you go back in the history of Dungeons & Dragons, people have been playing in different ways from the beginning. Gary Gygax disagreed with how David Ardenson was playing, right? Like, mm-hmm. and said, that's not D&D. Like, like what's what Gary Gygax's one quote? Like, uh, you want to do th- improv theater? That's not Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> you know, like, like, uh, it's got to be uh, com- and, complicated wargaming in a, in a cave. Yeah, it's got to be complicated yeah. wargaming in a cave with me hiding under my desk, shouting instructions at my children. <laughs> Look at this picture I drew. <laughs> I mean, it, it, so already, like, you know, two years later, Dungeons and Dragons is being played in very different ways. Uh, so how on earth do you marry those concepts so that you can uh, have a united game, so to speak? And I, I think in that regard, 5th edition is a, is a ripping success. It's not my favorite edition, but I, I, I think it met the impossible task of trying to create a, a fairly universally appealing Dungeons and Dragons system. Uh Oh, yeah. And you now, does the monk, does the monk work? I don't know. Like, I played a monk for years and years and years, and I look at that monk and I'm like, oh, yeah, mana pool, that makes sense. That makes sense. I don't know. I don't know how useful that is. But like. but did you have fun, James? 
I did. I did. My monk uh, lost his arm and uh, took on a big, uh, so he became the one-armed boxer and uh, uh. took on the prestige class uh, of drunken boxing. And then when uh, the 3.5 edition drunken boxer came out, I argued for like three weeks to get it converted to 3.5 because it was better. And uh, yeah, it was a, it was a long, a long ordeal. My longest D&D game, I think, actually, that one was. Well, then it was worth it. It was worth it for the memories. But I have to say, like, I, I don't want to cut off whatever you have planned, but, like, it was my dissatisfaction with the monk as a class that drove me to make a uh, a, a role-playing game about <laughs> fighting. <laughs> Really, I didn't realize, I didn't know that aspect of it. I, I that was one, that was one of my impetuses because the um, I, I found that martial arts and role playing games was so dissatisfying because uh, you either have something that's completely uh, like really overly detailed. Like Eric Wujic did a, a book called Ninjas and Super Spies for the Champion System that detailed a number of martial arts, and it was outrageously complex. And you basically need to have a black belt in order to play the darn game. <laughs> But then Dungeons and Dragons just reduced everything down to uh, higher AC and a few little magic tricks, like that weren't particularly versatile. <laughs> yeah. And uh, um, and then a bunch of stuff that you know didn't come up very often unless you made them come up, and in which case it was directing your play an awful lot. Uh, and it, uh, I found it, I found it ultimately like dissatisfying from a uh an emulation of martial arts because you're still rolling to hit you're just you're doing a short swords damage that just gets more magical in time and one of the flaws in dungeons and dragons is it has many pluses but one of its flaws is that some weapons are intrinsically better than others uh you know like why are you picking something that is the same as something else but has a smaller dice oh yeah in in Uh, third edition they used to one of the designers admitted that like they included feats that were objectively garbage so that players who knew could tell that they were garbage could feel good about not picking them (laughs) (laughs) i'll see if i can dig up who that was but so uh, we gave the internet something to complain about um Oh, yeah, that wasn't so, where I thought you were going to go with that either. I thought you were going to go with like, oh, we we made some feats be be garbage so that like if you could make them work, then that meant you were really cool, you know. <laughs> like when someone is like sounds great when they're playing like a cheap terrible guitar, it's like that means they actually know how to yeah. play, you know. Yeah. So like basically, I just I just it it, it kind of got me out of D anD D the fact that it failed to emulate what uh, was what I wanted to achieve with a martial arts character. Um, so I just played other things, you know, I just played druids and stuff and, and, and barbarians and half-orc shamans and things for the next several years. And, mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, which is fine. Like, it's not, you know, like I, I'm not, I'm not, I don't hate D and D. I'm just saying like, uh, mar- I felt like martial arts could be done in a, in a way that was a little bit more gripping to, to the situation and to a fight. Because the, the problem is Dungeons and Dragons, you can put lipstick on a pig, but it's, it's still a war game right yeah and people can play it very differently as like a social war game (laughs) within a map (laughs) but it's largely a war game that you make a narrative out of uh and and that's that's totally awesome for the you know that kind of story right but it's i don't think it's necessarily the best when we're like to tie this back to the monk for telling a monk kind of story
next paragraph section here in the monk entry is about the training and aestheticism. So this is about the small walled cloisters that dot the landscapes of the worlds of D&D. These are tiny refuges from ordinary life. The monks who live here, they seek personal perfection through contemplation, rigorous training. Many of them entered when they were kids. Um, They were possibly sent to live there when their parents died or if their parents couldn't find enough money to support them or in return for some sort of kindness that the monks may have given. Um, Some monks live entirely apart in isolation, thinking that they need that sort of isolation in order to achieve perfection. But most monks have at least a friendly relationship with neighboring settlements, and they act as a sort of de facto... uh, protective organization, the place that your villagers are going to turn to if they are attacked by raiders. And then the heroic monks will have to come out and uh, preserve the countryside. Uh, So these are all things that I think are pretty standard monk activities. The seclusion and the concentration on personal development. But it is kind of entirely at odds with the whole thrust of D&D. You mean as a Western-centric, uh, like, Lord of the Rings-ish fantasy? Yeah, yeah, like, both both in concept, which is that, and in the practical, even in, like, the very nuts and bolts, kind of what you're talking about, the smashing in of a door and f- assault on a dungeon. Yeah, I was just thinking, like, what is the monk's role? within the structures of play Mm -hmm. so what is a monk expected to do and i was thinking like well in earlier editions when you had fewer abilities they stuck out more and the monk was basically an acrobat kind of like in the D &D cartoon had an acrobat uh but i don't does that just that doesn't really bear out in later editions when the rogue for instance is a much better acrobat so what is the monk's role in fifth ed yeah it's tricky because like Mechanically, in combat, the thing that the monk has really, that no one else really has is, at a certain level, I forget what level, but like easy access to like stunning strike. You can, you can, you can stun something and keep it out of the fight for a turn. And so, like, I don't know, like in a, in a really like, like number grindery kind of way, it's, it's a way to like take something that like might be the biggest offensive threat and just like keep it from doing anything the whole time. That's what the monk's role is, uh, uh, but like it's also like you, you can build a monk in a lot of different ways and, and have him do different things. But nothing that's a whole identity unto itself, because in a lot of ways they end up being just kind of a weird fighter, you know? Yeah, mm-hmm. weird fighter. Huh. <laughs> like, um, I mean, flurry of blows has been yeah. a big thing since third edition. I assume it, and, and it's a big thing in fifth edition. But is it really useful to get that many more attacks when your damage output is fairly low? And that just involves a lot of rolling and a lot of being bored at the table, doesn't it? Um, Depends how you feel about rolling, I guess. I guess so. I don't know. It's just I'm just thinking of sitting standing there as somebody else rolls like seven attacks <laughs> can get pretty uh, tedious. But. Uh, uh, yeah, I get, can your flurry of blows strike multiple opponents? I think so. They're less concerned about that in 5th edition, I think. Because, I mean, if you can be the crowd clearer 
so to speak uh then because i remember in uh neverwinter nights when they had the monk like the video game when they had the monk in they just automatically gave the monk cleave at first level uh which struck me as a very strange thing to do at the time because it wasn't part of D rules at the time but like in terms of trying to make the monk into something worthwhile in a video game it made a lot of sense because they became the like room cleaner um for all the low-level enemies they just you know Ran up and kicked yeah, all the it was goblin. really similar in uh, uh, the early, the first two, at least, Baldur's Gate games and um, Icewind Dale, which I think are based on second edition Dungeon Dragons. But uh, you yeah, end up getting, yeah. um, I think, the most, like, the, the, the most attacks per round. And so if there was, like, a bunch of small, like you said, like, uh, you, you, you send them in first, and that's easy because they're faster. Uh, and then they, in, a, in like, one hit, kind of, they'll punch out all the goblins in the room full of goblins so that everyone else can deal with the other things but yeah but i guess the only other thing a monk is characterized by is getting to use their ac or their wisdom bonus for their armor class right but it didn't never seemed like their ac was actually any very high uh like that's kind of high at first level i guess or like early levels but like very quickly you know anybody in male or anything has a much higher ac in fi- in uh in fifth edition it's 10 plus your dex modifier plus wisdom modifier yeah yeah so you know just like in other editions it was just yeah it so it's decently like, high yeah so all these things are just like like every well, single it's decently thing high, gets, but it's, it just encourages you i don't know my, one of my problems with this though is that it means that there's only kind of one right monk which is the one with a lot of dex and a lot of wisdom yeah <laughs> so which cuts down on i think it's it's and role play versatility i guess yeah which uh, really like the monk is so rich in who can be a monk outside of the D D concept yeah you know i was somebody was posting on a, a board the other day a facebook group that i belong to and and they were trying to argue that every character from mortal Kombat is a monk they're just different kinds of monks <laughs> and i'm like sure you know like sure fine like you, you want to think that but the problem is like that's not quite how player characters shake down in D D. yeah like you can you can you can do that you can go that direction but like it, and, mm, yeah, you know? one thing that I like to do, this is just like a little in, internal hobby of mine, is when I'm watching a piece of media, sometimes I like to think like, oh, this like, I don't know, superhero or this character that like, what class are they in Dungeons and Dragons, this person? And I was rewatching um, some of Dragon Ball Z with my partner. And we're trying to figure out what, uh, like, Saiyans, like, what, what is Goku? And it seems obvious, like, he would be a monk, but like, he also does a lot of energy blasting stuff, you know? Uh... But then there's a Sun Soul monk whose whole thing is they can like in, they can use their martial arts to shoot energy beams that do radiant energy at things. And so like Goku is just a level twenty. I yeah, mean Tenzin yeah, totally. is obviously a monk, right? Um, uh, but but there are like I think you have to lean into the like role play narrative part of combat to get the different to get monks to feel sort of to feel different because. Um, with with the idea that you know a, an unarmed strike as a monk can be any part of your body then describe like the move you're doing like i do this kind of kick and then i, I use my elbow i throw my elbow over here and then i um I, I lash my tongue out and do a tongue punch on this guy and they're not expecting it you know it's part of your body again it's great you know big yeah. big wet yeah. tongue punch <laughs> like i bat my yeah. eyelashes so hard <laughs> you, you could do that you know or um if you in the I think it's in Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, they add the optional the like I forget what it's called, but there, there's there's additional options that you can you can have uh, optional class features, and one of them 
dedicated weapon, it lets you um, take any weapon that you're proficient with and spend like a little 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 time with it in the morning. I guess meditating with it. I imagine like balancing it on your finger or doing some sort of like Tai Chi esque sort of exercises with the weapon to make it your dedicated weapon, so it counts as a monk weapon for you. So you can have a long sword. Imagine it being a katana and take be a way of shadow monk, and you can play a very convincing ninja that way. You know, because you are using a long sword, which is pretty deadly. Um, you're very very sneaky, but you're not like run up and backstab somebody like a like a rogue sneaky. You are jump in front of them out of nowhere and then fight them head on but you show up out of nowhere kind of sneaky and that's a that's you know i thought i thought katanas were a d10 yeah uh, but a, a long sword if you hold it with two hands is a d10 oh yeah i forgot about that i forgot about that change <laughs> yeah but then as a monk weapon it would use dexterity and it would have all that all this stuff so it's that's how you do it and i feel like that would feel distinct in combat if you were like i'm fighting with this katana but also i'm throwing some kicks in here and there and i'm real sneaky but i'm not stabbing you in the back i'm like mm-hmm. aha i'm a ninja here to fight you you know that kind of thing yeah you really gotta buy into it as a player yeah to make up for the lack of like the the other archetypes especially the core four i think the fighter wizard cleric rogue archetypically like you know what you're supposed to be doing you know where you fit in the the story even if the story is just going into a dungeon but like the monk you really need to bring your own your own stuff to it and be okay with the fact that every one of these abilities the monk seems to get seems to be like a consolation or like trying to just like pump some life into it to make it worth uh doing i mean i think that the kind of structure of the monk is is a, a little bit flawed and I, I don't mean like in terms of D because you've got a fairly high ac but not a super high ac everything that happens that you can do you have to do up close so the the idea is that you have to run in really up close to somebody not get hit because you've got a pretty low hit point pool and then be able to affect your ostensibly or magical abilities like flurry blows or stunning strike or uh, poison fist or whatever you're doing. But the problem is other characters have a higher AC than you are in the same range as you and aren't as squishy as you. And like, even if the case is that your AC is, uh, the highest that is available the problem from a design perspective is that the gm wants to be able to hit the players in order to have a balanced encounter right so if you've got well okay if you've got other characters with a higher ac than the monk and you're all in melee together then you've just increased the odds of the monk getting hit because uh yeah that is a, that is a concern and then the monk is just going to drop a whole lot and I feel like there was no uh, mm-hmm. provision for, like, I guess if you're if you're going to structure him in a more complete way, I'm not using the word balanced because I don't know that it really applies here, but if it, in a more complete way, then maybe he should be not be doing death saves in the same way, as opposed to having a pool of something. Do you, can the can the pool the the key pool affect death saves or anything or in any way, or is it just basically like combat tricks? You do get uh, proficiency in all saving throws at, like, 14th level. That comes way too late. I mean, if you made him an, er- an early saving throw king, that would be a good design choice. Because if you could say, like, like uh, what does the monk do? Oh, he's the one who makes outrageous saving throws. Like, is the, th- that would be a really cool yeah. niche to capture. Actually, I think I remember f- thinking that when I went through the 5th the edition uh, book when it first came out. I was like, 
why didn't they lean into the monks as being like tremendous saving throw guys? Because that would be a that would be, I, that, I think it's a cool niche. Like, what does a fighter do? Fighter hits hard and has high AC. Yeah. What does what does a barbarian do? Fighter hits uh, barbarian hits even harder, but has like lousy AC. Uh, you know, what does the wizard do? Magic. What does the like? What does the monk do? Monstrously good saves. Yeah, that's that's a yeah that's a great point because you could just look at the character sheet and look at what things on there aren't being like highlighted by other classes and like there's just oh no, no i'm just going to build on that like there's certain things that are not covered by classes even still but are generally covered by feats like improved initiative for instance uh, but uh mm. but there isn't a feat for well okay there probably is a feat for having better saves going back a little bit to the like whether it affects uh death saving throws and stuff like that there is one ability that's close to that but you have to be a way of the long death monk and you have to be level 11 um but uh when you are reduced to zero hit points you, you can expend one key point um no action required to have one hit point oh, instead nice. i mean levels like 9 to 12 are generally considered the sweet spot right so that and that's where mm-hmm. most people start play yeah. at, at like according to surveys most people start play at level three these days and uh and use use levels one and two as like the training wheels uh and uh but like the 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 best part of play apparently happens between nine and twelve so i can see that getting a lot of use but that's only one stream of monk eh yeah that's just uh, the way of the long death there's a this other thing that they get at 15th level is timeless body uh your key sustains you so that you suffer none of the frailty of old age and you can't be aged magically you can still die of old age um, but you also don't yeah, eat food some, or water. That, that's that's from uh, earlier editions. But like, I always wondered, like, are you just walking around one day, like walking down a path, and suddenly you kill over dead from old age? Yeah, what's like, what's the average lifespan of a player character in D anD? d Well, if it's supposed to be Not kind good. of like pseudo medieval, then thirty. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, if like it's such a bummer to hit fifteenth level, and that's the only feature you get, and you're like, well. I mean, I'm of the opinion from a design perspective that less is more and that if you give people too many things that you just you stop being able to keep track of them and they cease being relevant and you just get kind of frustrated. You can't actually put them into practice. Um, But I don't know, like it seems like the monk is like an unarmed fighting wizard that got stuck at level two. (laughs) You know, because like the bag of tricks is about as good as like that they they get for the key pools about as good as like prestig- yeah. prestigitation or something like it's that that's very true. And let's, I think a person who's going to pick the monk is going to have to come at it with a strong role playing hook behind it. So this the the book f- suggests in this like little sub paragraph after setting up that a monk is all about the isolation and the the cloister training. That's a a monk who becomes an adventurer. It is a harsh transition. Monks don't do it lightly. They take it seriously. They approach adventurers, sorry, uh, adventures as personal tests of their physical and spiritual growth. In general, as a rule, they care little for material wealth and are driven by a desire to accomplish a greater mission than merely slaying monsters and plundering their treasure. So, to me, they they suffer from the same thing that the paladin suffers from which is that the in the role playing aspect inherent to the class they have like they're not just going to like hang around with adventurers and do whatever they have a mission huh i mean it, are are there rules in 5th edition about the monk not having wealth i don't think so unless i 
because that was definitely yeah, a thing. I remember that one from conditions. I think third. They weren't allowed to have any possessions. I don't think they're like barred from having possessions or like have to refuse payments. Um, I think they just start with yeah. less money. <laughs> <laughs> Which like. I mean, I know I'm yeah. this is kind of the same thing with uh, they used to make like barbarians used to not be able to be literate. Right. But now that's that's <laughs> done away with. It's like in the flavor text. But it's like if your barbarian reads the known. Uh, even if there's no yeah. mechanical reinforcement, yeah. it doesn't exist. Right. Like, uh, I mean, I'm all for for approaching things from a role playing perspective and like, what can we do as an interesting character here? But within the confines of the system, the problem is the system keeps rewarding yeah. whatever the system rewards, regardless of what you. Uh, what you how you want to structure this um and uh yeah like i keep thinking back to first edition not that i played a lot of first edition but monk and bard and ranger and paladin were all like classes that you couldn't just get you had to have stat minimums uh in order to get them and they were inherently better than the other classes like they were inherently better yeah but they had like severe limitations like the uh and gary gygax wrote about this about how he made the paladin because people felt like being lawful good as a fighter was such a bad limitation. So the, the paladin, which is basically, um, I don't know if you read the book Three Hearts and Three Lions. It's basically from Three Hearts and Three Lions. The the D and D paladin was supposed to be like your reward for sticking to a lawful good attitude, and then the monk was supposed to be kind of like your reward for going without possessions or magic items. That makes a lot of sense, right? Yeah, and that's fun too. That's like a great just, like especially if you've kind of played the first other classes and you want like an extra challenge but also something a little spicier yeah, i mean it's it's fun it's, it sounds fun it sounds fun but the problem is like if you're playing with a group and somebody's played for a while or somebody managed to like the problem is players like more experienced players can outfox newer players with making clever class choices based on things they know that newer players don't in in first edition right so and you feel like the guy's a bit of a jerk who's playing the like <laughs> uber uber ranger at the table when everybody else is like you know a thief with a rusty dagger yeah. or you know what i mean so like there's an inherent disparity going on there that that never quite uh worked itself out the way the rules wanted it to so i can see why they would try and reapproach these things like third edition was kind of the great amalgamation of a lot of these ideas like let's bring them all on the same even keel mm-hmm. Uh, and, and was trying to address a lot of problems people had. And then fifth edition has been like the same thing. Like let's, let's try and wash everything clean and, and put everything on the same kind of perspective. Uh, I, I don't know if it's like hopeless, honestly, <laughs> because, well, because the answer seems to be just to give people more and more and more and more stuff. That's like less and less and less and less useful. Um, and then, yeah, the splat, know, man, yeah. endless splat. Oceans and oceans of splat. I don't know. People get mad at me because when I run D and when I run fifth edition, uh, I do it without feats and without skills, <laughs> which is in the book. Yeah, it's recommended, <laughs> but people get super <laughs> mad. Um, I'm uh, I'm running a, a game of fifth edition at uh, the Hastings Medieval Festival in June, uh, and it is a live event. So I, there's like rope on a football field. Uh, demarking the dungeons rooms and then people sign up for the game to like walk through those rooms where i put little cutting boards uh, against the doors to signify like where the doorways are and stuff and we've got 
the Peterborough, some Peterborough LARPers uh, guild is going to come in to be all the monsters in the dungeon. Uh, and yeah, it'll happen. It'll happen in full and glorious view. And, uh, and I'm also running some games in a uh, tent, like in a medieval tent for the medieval festival. Uh, this is the like third time I've come out to the Hastings medieval festival to run games in a tent. Uh, but the, the point is the point of it is like, I, I'm going to do it without feats and I'm going to do it without skills because I want people who have never played before to be able to get into the action pretty quickly in terms of what they can do and not like spend a lot of time thinking about how they can combine moves yes. to, to, you know. Yeah, so no monks is what you're saying also. No monks, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, 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 if I was going to play a D&D game, like a monk is one of the things that I would as a player that I would, I would be most interested in playing. I don't care if they don't quite work or if they don't yeah. <laughs> like, you know, like that's, that's I'm more what I'm interested. So in how doing, would you, but... how would you, uh, insert a monk into like, let's say you, you were going to join a game. You didn't know what was going to be ran that day. How would you set up your monk character to be okay with going with whatever was on the table? I mean, I've always been with groups that wanted to set up their characters in reference to other characters. I've never heard of this phenomenon of people just showing up to game with a character already generated and stuff, right? But but the the kind of tournament structure in both 5th edition and Pathfinder was structured to make it so that you had a rules legal character that you could make in isolation. So I understand people do that. Uh, I don't really understand people doing that, but... I don't know. When I think of a monk in a Western fantasy setting, I always think of Final Fantasy, which is based on Dungeons and Dragons, right? And it had a monk, like right off the bat. Uh, and it was kind of a weird East meets West kind of notion because they were fetishizing Western fantasy tropes, but from a from a Japanese lens. And that's kind of what I think of as a as a monk in D and D in my like you know semiotic side is uh, is kind of a Final Fantasy like like literally Final Fantasy one monk idea uh so how would i make a monk within that setting i don't know i guess i just make kwai jan kane like he's a one because like the thing is you can't really make a monastic monk because why are they leaving the right. temple yeah and there's only so many times Problem you one. can do because the temple burned down or because they've got a, a mission of revenge or whatever like so most people tend to just default to be like i don't know i guess i'm just wandering <laughs> like yeah <laughs> i had an idea for a monk a while ago because i was wrestling with the same thing of like why would this cloistered martial artist who and they were going to be a wood elf too has spent hundreds of years just meditating why would they go off <clears throat> and wander around with a bunch of people they just met and get involved with everyone else's mm -hmm. business right um <clears throat> and what if like the sort of philosophy that they were meditating on was the idea i think i've talked to you about this before chris but in person um that uh the universe the world was a chaotic place and um but if you could find at the set like imagine a wheel and the wheel is spinning and the centrifugal centrifugal force is throwing everything off of the wheel but if you consider the middle you'll spin around but you won't fly off of the wheel so they're looking for the scent like they're following chaos and 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 destruction and weirdness and danger and they're trying to find the most the center of the of the spinning the center of chaos like the, and it's right eye of there the storm of like the violence the and storm, murder but exactly but if they go to the eye of the storm they won't fly off they won't they won't fly off they'll just they'll just get dizzy and so the idea is 
you find enlightenment by finding the most perilous situation you can possibly be in and being in an extreme physical discomfort. <laughs> and that's how you find, that's how you achieve enlightenment. So they're, they're, they're going off, they're getting involved in all these things, they're following people around because they're, 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 they're trying to find that, that, that sort of like a physical and That should be space. the default monk in D&D. <laughs> <laughs> So the monk in fifth edition, they lifted the restriction on them having to be lawful, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it, what the problem in third edition was, I mean, you know, there's a lot of problems third edition, but like there were some classes that couldn't you couldn't multi-class together because like it was impossible because of the alignment restrictions. So like you couldn't have a bard monk, for instance, because bards had to be chaotic and monks had to be lawful. Um, but they they lifted that. That was one of the first things I thought of uh, of. If for fifth edition it was like wow i can make a bard monk now who goes around singing and kung fu fighting like the carl douglas character <laughs> that thought has never occurred to me <laughs> <laughs> the other the, the uh the other one was the uh, yeah yeah i mean there's there's a lot of like weird combinations but i don't know yeah it's, it suffers from the same thing as the paladin which is like if you're law-abiding character and one of the like you catch the rogue like doing a rogue thing cutting a purse stealing something then it devolves into a fight and like you you can if depending on how like far the players want to take it or even to one player wanting to take it you could derail the entire thing yeah and you know you're just punishing people for playing their character yeah. at that point right and and i don't know like the groups in D D, the way D is laid out it's kind of like a western frontiersman like wild west attitude of like whatever happens to the town you can rob anybody you like you can burn it down you can just move on to the next town that's fine they don't communicate like there's a <laughs> like, like it's less medieval and more american frontiers right yeah. like it's just it's like a renaissance era without gunpowder in an american frontier west that is dressed up in a medieval clothes uh and like within that structure it's no wonder that people just become murder hobos. Uh, but like as a paladin or as a monk, like it's really hard to find justification as to why you are traveling around with people who are basically mercenaries at best, mm -hmm. right? They get employed by whoever to do whatever, but it involves violence and you got money for it. I'm sorry. Like this is a mercenary game. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's, it's a mercenary game. Yeah. More or less. I it mean, doesn't have to be, it, but... at, at least in terms of his default configuration and like how it's it's set up to be to be executed, uh, it's it's a mercenary game. So what what is a monk or a paladin doing being a mercenary? And the alternative to that, of course, is you have some like highfalutin world-ending glory quest mm -hmm. uh, that you know makes you the center of all attention, which is you know just as bad in the other direction. Yeah. <laughs> like, I think a lot of people do it. Um, a lot of people use the supplements that Wizards of the Coast produces, and then you're encouraged to create your character in reference to what the players are told about the world by the DM. As a GM, that always bugs, it bugs me. Like, yeah, I don't know. Would, yeah, like like I, the thing problem is I can't keep up with all the the publication schedule of these things, and I certainly don't want to read them cover to cover. And then people will come to me with like these outrageous splat book things, and I'd be like, oh sure, okay, fine. I'm sure it can't be that bad. It was always that. Yeah, bad. exactly. It wasn't like just sometimes that bad. It was always that bad. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned the uh, the the Western mercenary medieval thing. 
and how the monk fits into it. And I think that there's, there might be another way in with the monk that has to do with some errors that were made in the miniature making of early monks. So there's this book called The Evolution of Fantasy Role-Playing Games um, by an author named Michael Tresca. And he wrote that the original monk was a cleric path, which I think is true. Um, or mm. at least it was after after the um, what was it Blackmore the original supplement it it was in then in original D and D it was made a cleric path and I think in second edition it existed as a cleric path but anyways um, uh, it's one of the few classes that has no anchor in Western lore right so you got crusading knights assassins the monk is a particularly Eastern phenomenon and as a result the monk's roots were sometimes conflated. So that there was one set of lead miniatures that were um, Franciscan-style monks in martial arts poses. <laughs> Which, I mean, I think that's I think that's a good direction. That's an excellent direction uh, that needs to be explored more. I think. Well, I mean, you know, medieval monks, medieval European monks, uh, were no slouches. Like the dumbbell, uh, you know, the the barbells yeah. come from uh, bells that would be church bells Working that out. would have the tongue taken out of them, so that they could work out and get buff. Yeah. You know? They weren't all just drinking yeah. beer and you'd working out, getting buff, praying for the world, making bread. <laughs> <laughs> and think of that's like a, a that's like a, a that's like a knitted plaque that should be on your door. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's above the monastery yeah. of the chaos monks. Yeah. <laughs> Especially like making bread with like an N apostrophe. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. And even just think about Friar Tuck in every uh instance of Robin Hood you've seen, he like hits somebody with his belly, like that's a martial art. His belly is magical, <laughs> can do magic damage. That's it. Oh From yeah. The school of Kung Fu Panda, I <laughs> guess. Like <laughs> Yeah, exactly. kickstarter at all no which is fine which is fine because i've got like <laughs> so much to talk about with this monk because like i don't want to be down on D. like it's literally the most popular role-playing game in the world uh you know you get some pockets like japan where call of cthulhu is more popular or whatever but like generally speaking is most popular role-playing game in the world it has like 80 percent market share it's like the chapters when the rest of us are like little independent bookstores and it's very 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 popular and it's very popular for a reason and like yes it has a lot of flaws but that's because it's that massive and complex and has that much legacy behind it and and, uh i think a lot of people have a lot of fun and it drives a lot of action and and you know people really enjoy it so i don't want to like just sit here and complain about D &D. but uh but the monk bugs me so much sorry it just like I, I just feel like it, it failed to find a niche and it failed to execute it like both of those things mm -hmm. uh and i just i just they had such a good opportunity with fifth edition to just totally throw it out the window and rewrite it but instead they just took off a few class restrictions and then didn't answer the question of why am i not just a fighter with an unarmed combat proficiency well why don't we um we've been talking for a while why don't we take this opportunity let's hear uh 
fight to survive. What is what's the what's the fighting like in that? How do you how do you fix the the monkishness of D and D? Not that that's what you're trying to do. I'll be, but... I mean, like I'll be I'll be honest, Chris. Like fight to survive, I love it. Uh, but it is, you know, it's the, not my best. Talk about the kind of but when we talk about the kind of broad appeal of D anD D, like despite all of its flaws, it has a very broad appeal. And one of the one of the best things about D anD D is that it's got a kitchen sink approach. Is you could have somebody at that table who wants to optimize all their numbers and power game, and besides somebody who's just interested in role playing like uh and and doing characters and you know like besides somebody who has like a combination of those interests it's very hard with the development of any other kind of game uh outside of dungeons and dragons and it's you know and it's offshoots to uh not be in agreement on the kind of game you're playing right because every other kind of game kind of requires a mutual buy-in from from players as to what kind of game you're playing whereas D does not D you, you can play in the same play group in completely contradictory styles and like it, it will mostly work like the wheels will mostly keep on the carriage right but with fight to survive uh like a lot of niche role-playing games it, you need to you need to buy into the setting uh, which is a challenge like it's it's a marketing challenge as opposed to D&D, which is just kind of like the the universal property like it has no it has no real boundaries except for the ones that you as a group choose to impose on yourselves and the ones that the dm chooses to impose on you like literally anything can happen there's there's ninjas there's muskets there's you know etc cetera, etc cetera. like like there's airships sure why not where there's airships you know like uh, this is sci-fi power armor <laughs> exactly exactly like oh it's you know you've got a war forged you're a, like a hollow robot with magic r- robot okay let's go um and you know let's that's where a lot of people their imaginations are fueled and the possibilities seem endless and that's that's awesome but with just about every other role-playing game you you need to focus right because not every system can be a kind of omni system and i know D kind of pretends like it's fantasy but it's it's more like superheroes in pseudo medieval dress right and uh uh which which again like that's what people want it's obviously selling awesome uh but my game fight to survive is not about superheroes and it's not a power fantasy and one of the things that kept coming up in playtesting was this this one player like after a few weeks of games it finally dawned on him he's like this isn't a power fantasy at all i'm like no (laughs) no it's not it was never intended to be and some people just want to just want to play a a power fantasy and that's okay like awesome like you know your your job sucks or whatever and you want to you want to like it be awesome for a little while great um but not every story that you read is the same and not every film you watch is the same and not every role-playing game should be the same or have the same themes so fight to survive is uh it's got a niche setting and it's got niche mechanics and it's it's a weird little indie game uh it's diceless for one which immediately turns some people off uh because it just doesn't need them like i don't i don't need dice for this uh, i love dice too and i i design games with dice as well and i've designed games of cards and the last big game that i did was was, was pulling runes but uh for this one it's it's diceless and you choose your moves before you get into a fight uh, every character has five moves punch kick uh grapple block and footwork and so you choose three of those when you're going to get into a fight is it's like the split second of tactics of planning and then you match those moves so if i'm going to fight 
Wes here and I go away and I squirrel away my moves and I'm like, okay, I'm going to do punch, punch, kick. I think, I think I'm going to do punch, punch, kick. And then like Wes has to go first and he says, uh, grapple. And I'm like, okay, okay. Then I'll choose punch because punch beats grapple because I punched him out of the grapple. Sorry, can I hear your uh, Wes impression again? <laughs> it was really good. It'll, I'll come back to it. Just hold on. It's, when it's his turn, uh, so I, I said punch, 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 and and then Wes in response to that punch, he's like kick, and I'm like okay, all right, so kick. I'm, I do I have anything for the kick? Well, I've I've all I've got left is a punch and a kick. Uh, how am I going to overcome that kick? Well, I'm going to kick, and I'll see if my kick beats his kick by who who is trained more and had a higher technique in kick. And so I'm like, kick. And then I'm like, okay, I've got like three years training in this kick. And how, how much do you have, Wes? And Wes is like, 10. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, you just kicked me in the face. Uh, so like, it's it's an exchange of moves and a call of a call and response with moves trumping moves in a kind of rudimentary rock, paper, scissors. And the, uh, the, the legend of it is on the character sheet. It's very easy to follow. It's very intuitive. And it's best two out of three rounds. And you see who gets pummeled, right? But... The fighting part is only part of the story because there's lots of role-playing games out there if you just want to play a fighting game and you just want to mash, like, effectively mash buttons at each other on a tabletop. Uh, and, and some people really dig that. Um, but this is not one of those because I really wanted to capture kind of the heart of the genre, like, of the film genre. Like, this is a kind of structure that people often make fun of its lousy plots uh, and its overly emotive, uh, nonsensical acting. But I think there's genius in there quite frankly. I was watching uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme's Bloodsport from 1988, and I hate to go on and on about the same movie, because there's a million influences that have come into this, and many of them are cinematic, but there was a particular scene in Bloodsport that really caught my attention, which is Jean-Claude Van Damme is on a Hong Kong bus, and he's just, like, there's just been an awful fight, and his friend got hurt, and his friend got his leg broken, and he's in the hospital, and etc., etc., and Jean-Claude Van Damme is, is on this strange bus in a strange city, like not where he's from at all and it's late at night and he's there's a music playing in the background like by stan bush and uh john claude van damme as frank dukes you know being played by john claude van damme uh stares in the mirror and he sees the image of his enemy chong lee uh in in the window uh but then he, when he turns to see where he would be seated he's not there and i'm like oh he's haunted he's haunted by this by this enemy of his and I thought to myself, like, I, I know that's a simple emotional beat, but like, why, why isn't this mechanically relevant within a role-playing game? Because I'm pretty adamant that unless you have something with mechanical reinforcement, people don't play it. You can do anything you want with like hand-wavy downtime activities, and that's fine. And like, I do a lot of hand-wavy downtime activities, like when I'm playing D&D. But unless you bring it into the game in a way that is mechanically reinforced, people will not lean into that style of play, right? Like earlier editions of D&D, you got experience for gold, so everybody hoarded gold. Later editions of D&D, you got experience for killing things, so everybody killed things. And now experience is a little bit more ambiguous in <laughs> 5th mm -hmm. edition, because it's meant to be more over open-ended. But the point is, is it's still based on the acquisition of an arbitrary system of hero cookies right for experience uh and and whatever is being done in the game is is going to enforce enforce you towards that area of play which is still largely dependent on killing things well i i mean i just wanted to reward different things so how do we make this kind of emotional scene of jean-claude van damme seeing his enemy and feeling haunted by him on a long bus ride in hong kong how do we make that emotionally relevant so there's the fighting aspect of the game uh, but I don't know how much you want to get into the mechanics here, but I think they're really interesting. There's the fighting aspect of the game, but as well as a health track, you have a hardship track. 
So everything that goes wrong in your life, you start gaining hardship. <laughs> and just like the health track, if you go off uh, the track, you quit. Like with the, with the health track, you like you're like dead. But with the hardship track, you're just like I I don't want to do this anymore. Like I quit this violent lifestyle. I'm just gonna go wander the earth, or I don't know, whatever. Yeah. Like leave me alone. Uh, so you know, if you if your dog runs away, you get a hardship. You lose your job, you get a hardship. Like it's raining too hard outside, you get a hardship. Like whatever whatever flimsy excuse the GM can can consider to give you a hardship, give you a hardship. Uh, the only thing preventing you from being utterly swallowed by that hardship, because like you get in fights, you get hardship is the fact that you've got comforts as a character you have people places and things that are important to you so i might have a comfort of like my girlfriend sally and the place might be reva's diner in old town where it's you know made of neon and chrome and and two of the letters haven't glowed in about 20 years and and uh you know the the chrome is starting to wear and the teal is getting kind of musty but darn it reva serves a really good pie uh, and you know that's that might be my place and then my thing might be like a cool pair of shades just off the top of my head uh so the, each of those comforts has a value uh that you invest in as you each year you you try and invest your points in those things so if my hardship is up to like eight or something i might go to reva's diner and get some pie which is a value of three and so it reduces that hardship back down so it becomes a vicious cycle where you get into fights, you gain hardship, you got to find a way to deal with that hardship. And so you're trying to find a way emotionally as a character to deal with your life. Uh, the, it gets like the fun curveball is that, you know, that if you write down something as a comfort, that is exactly what's on the chopping block. Every game, a comfort goes under threat. At least one comfort goes under threat. Uh, sometimes one for each character. So like if my girlfriend sally's been kidnapped boom you got to get her back otherwise the four points that you added did you put in her uh they're going to go straight into your hardship and then the comfort's going to be gone you're not going to have that comfort anymore so go rescue her uh or you know reva's diner is being uh, broken into by thugs who want to destroy the place and steal the money are you going to protect the diner like that's a pretty easy one maybe or you can run away like i had a really good really emotional game a while ago where somebody's pub poison's pub was being uh couldn't pay its back taxes and uh the the person who actually owned the land wanted to bulldoze the pub and put up a new uh subdevelopment and the guys could not figure a way around it to save the pub so everybody who had down poison's pub as a comfort all took that much hardship lost the comfort and sat there sadly as the place got bulldozed and then had to go out and deal with that like hardship that they just took on so it it drags you back there's this tension between the cycle like this lifestyle of violence that you keep getting suckered back into uh and the fact that you know that it's harmful in your life and it keeps uh keeps trying to destroy you and in that like in that kind of depressing murky water <laughs> There's also like embracing the fun of genre conventions of like Bruce Lee walking into the Japanese dojo and and punching up a whole bunch of Japanese guys uh, in, in, in their karate uniforms. So uh, marrying those two concepts is not very difficult because martial arts movies tend to be highly emotive and very uh very emotionally driven and have lots of like really tragic ups and downs. So you end up with something that is where you're not just fighting you're fighting because of very complicated very but very clear reasons like you're fighting within a context you're fighting for something the stakes are understandable yeah uh, it's personal it's the, the stakes are personal well i mean my big my big uh uh line about this is like look at all the marvel superheroes movies where the stakes are always like world ending or universe ending and there's a certain point at which you just stop caring 
But if you're playing a game and it's a place that you care about on your sheet, then it's something that you care about withstanding. The, the added to this is the fact that the game is multi-generational. So every game session is about a year of time and it could be up to three years of time. So time passes pretty quickly you age pretty quickly you start getting like better at what you do as you age but you're uh you can't really take the hits as much as you age and you can end up like inheriting and passing down your abilities and your teachings to your successors like your students or your kids or just somebody you met on the street i don't know and uh the what that makes is a kind of crazy cosmopolitan narrative because you're sharing these comforts like my comfort of my girlfriend sally might be my girlfriend but for wes it's like you know his sister or something so then these these characters are all connected through their comforts and, and things are connected relevantly in other ways but as you get some distance like the more you play the deeper and richer that world becomes so it's not just reva's diner anymore it's reva's diner that we stopped a bunch of greasers from smashing up in 1952 but you know i threw a guy through the window and reva was super mad at me because those windows are really hard to replace so then we had to go and enter that tournament in order to get the prize money and just pay for reva's darn window but you know it all came to naught because the insurance guy tried to close it down like four years later and like there's a there's a depth (laughs) of experience that happens uh just through the course of play i didn't have to plan any of this like all i planned as a gm is like uh yeah this comfort's under threat and then uh and then the game grows and grows and grows and grows because one of the problems with niche role-playing games is they're often only good for one like not often but many times they're only good for one and done right they're good for like one-offs Whereas one of D&D's big assets is that you can play, like, because of its leveling system, I've got problems with the leveling system, but because of its leveling system, people feel like they can play for a long period of time because they feel a sense of progression with those numbers rising. I think it's a flawed progression, but, like, we don't have to get into that. But it, the, the point is, uh, one of its advantages, at least in players' perceptions, is that they can play long-term campaigns. So with Fight to Survive, the longer you play, the better the game is, basically. I had to like rest the game away from my principal playtest group after like 30 sessions <laughs> like we can't keep doing this guys i've got to publish this game <laughs> like let's uh let, let's get on with this uh so what it's doing is is ridiculously different from something like dungeons and dragons um it is a preposterously different experience and that is both good for the people who are looking for that experience and very very bad for the people whose framework to role playing is is just fifth edition which is probably the majority of the hobby um (laughs) i've talked at length but like that's 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 the the that's what's going on with it that's the kickstarter i like it i haven't heard you uh really elaborate on it and i haven't yet dug into any of the i've read the development blog but um that was that really puts it in in perspective and going back to what you said at the very beginning of this show when i was talking about the first example that the book gives you as being um like jackie chan fighting the axe gang and then you very correctly brought up jet lee those movies, Jet Li's uh, like hero and um, the one he's not in, but like House of Flying Daggers, those are like hyper emotional movies. And the one thing missing from all this description that the player is just supposed to bring to it, but is never really given the tools to do so, except in this like flimsy background section where you pick bonds and flaws and stuff, and it's all totally optional, is the emotion. Or like think of Naruto. These are all like martial artists, magic monks, 
and it's like nothing but hyper emotion yeah and like you can do that in dungeons and dragons is i hear people saying and certainly when i run a dungeons and dragons game i want people to yeah you know try and respond like in, in a sense of a character and like what your character motivations are and stuff but but the problem it's not in the game the, the problem is if you don't yeah. if you don't reward it like if, if it doesn't have an enforcement then that's not the play style that's going to be dictated like you can do anything you want in hand wavy downtime activities like yeah of course and then you guys built a subway in the town and sure and you fell in love and had children yeah uh but uh to to have it so that, that that kind of stuff is front and center and supported and that other like it is it changes it changes the experience completely in terms of what game you're running or what game you're playing right uh so yeah like i i'm of the opinion that there's a lot to do in tabletop role-playing game like there's a lot of new experiences to mine to new, new genres to rip off like new kind of feelings to have uh and that we need new systems in order to accomplish those new feelings because the the system dictates play and you lean into what uh, is being extracted like and presented to you and packaged to you uh so we need new systems at all times and like forever uh because I, i feel like the hobby like a lot of people say think that feel like the hobby is like done i feel like the hobby's in its infancy i feel like i look out on a on a field and it's vast and empty like you know, a lot of people are are very happy with only knowing one system, but that sounds to me like um, only knowing one, having one video game, mm-hmm. right? You wouldn't just like, oh, I don't know, I can do whatever I want in World of Warcraft in 2007. <laughs> <laughs> I can go and do whatever I want. Why do I want another <laughs> video game? And I'm like, I, I don't know. Like, people don't make that argument for video games. I don't know why they uh, want to make that argument for tabletop role-playing games. But, like, I, I'm I'm convinced because, like, e- even the same people will approach a new video game and understand that it's completely new mechanically from every other video game they've ever had. And they have no problem with that, like learning a new system <laughs> through video games. But learning a new system through tabletop role-playing games uh, can be just as exciting and lead to just as different of experiences. Just like how, uh, you know, Harvest Moon and Animal Crossing are not the same experience as World of Warcraft, uh, there are whole new experiences to have in tabletop role-playing games. And I think that we can better capture the kind of martial arts aspect and martial arts genre conventions and the feeling of fighting not you can never get real like you can never be real but like you're chasing the real but really we're after verisimilitude which is not the same thing because it doesn't have to be based on principles of reality there's there's has to be an ease of play to structure something with verisimilitude uh and in terms of that i think fight to survive is a crowning success fight to survive a new kind of feeling <laughs> a new kind of feeling uh but in, but in terms of trying to explain its structure to people and why i made the choices that i did and uh it's very alienating when people are coming from the monk when people are thinking of monks right you can't just fight you need feeling i mean alien uh, yeah you can't just fight you need feeling uh, if you don't feel it enough i'll fight it into you no, <laughs> <laughs> really <laughs> What you need, what would be ideal for you, I think, marketing-wise, is if, um, and I can volunteer myself and maybe Wes uh, as well to do this, um, but we will get so sucked into the world of your game that we will actually meet in a in a uh, a parking lot and just beat the shit out of each other and say that your game made us do it. Oh, you know, yeah. I, <laughs> for bad publicity. <laughs> 
So I haven't shown anybody the Kickstarter goals yet, like any of them, except for like one of the playtest groups. Uh, but like literally, this is never going to happen. So I can I can freely say this, but like the bonkers, preposterous, somehow I ended up with $50,000 or something uh, playtest goal is a friend of mine drives three hours to my house and punches me almost as hard as he can in the face. <laughs> I love that you stipulate almost. <laughs> it's like just lay, put that seed in there. Like you have to hold back a little bit. Like that, whatever amount that is, that'll be enough to save you. Yeah. So I mean, if the Kickstarter makes fifty thousand dollars, then we get up to that and stretch goals. Uh, my friend Kevin's going to drive to my house. It takes three hours, and he's going to punch me in the face Ooh. almost as hard as he can. Uh, I, for one, will be checking my bank account and seeing. <laughs> I haven't even put up the Kickstarter goals yet yeah. because we're only fifty percent funded. So yeah. it's it's uh um it'll happen. There's a lot of reveals to go. Um, um Yeah. James, it occurs to me, I think years ago I played with you a very early version of this game. Oh yeah, you might have. I mean it's yeah. it's been floating around in one form or another in proto form since like two thousand and fifteen. Yeah. It uh, it it uh I I remember it was set there was a there was a gym like a like a training gym that was underneath the pool hall and my character uh, uh i had specialized in the long punch of some kind and you know it was a, it was a diceless um uh uh you know oh, like and Wes, i think yeah. you may have been part of the very literally the very first game wow uh, because that was at Paul Cleveland's house, and I yeah, definitely, that was. I definitely introduced it for the very first time at Paul Cleveland's house, and said, "Guys, I've got a game for you. I've been working on it for a couple of weeks. Like, it's uh, this is what we're gonna do." That's it, amazing. I think about that character that I played all the you time. You told me about this. <laughs> he had learned martial arts. I told he learned martial arts traveling uh, China on on motorcycle during World War II as a motorcycle spy and messenger, picking up martial arts along the way. He looks like young Brando, and he moved to the states to join uh, martial arts uh, competitions. Yeah, because I always knew that I wanted it to be like a, a across the twentieth century kind of yeah. structure, so that people could like dig into history and have a good time with it, and like maybe be as deep about history as they want to or or not. Uh, and so the very first game was was a post World War II game after General Douglas MacArthur's scad ban was lifted, and when martial arts started to to kind of permeate into the states, it started in nineteen fifty five, which is just one year before Robert Trias opened uh, the first uh, karate studio in North America. And that was the first game, Wes. That was like literally the first time anybody saw it. So that, that means wow. you have to back it. So now. are you saying? Yeah. Are, are you <laughs> saying Monster Manual Mash is responsible for you creating Fight to Survive? I mean, I, I mean, at least half of it. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of like I, I from that first game. Like the thing is. You can't invent a game. I guess you can. You can do a role-playing game as an intellectual exercise that has actually no bearing as a social environment or a social contract. I wouldn't suggest it. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, and from my marsh, my approach to design, is everything lives and dies at the table. It doesn't matter what kind of fancy stuff you made up and wrote down. Uh, writing it down doesn't make it true. Uh, if it never gets used at the table, it doesn't exist. 
And if the table is is dictating a play direction that's contrary to your design goals, then your design goals didn't work. And so it that's why it's seven years. Well, it's part of the reason why it's seven years later that this this thing's being published. I got distracted by actually getting in the role playing game industry and working in it for a while. Uh, but, <laughs> uh, but so it's been on hold for the last three years or so. But it's it's more or less like it's undergone remarkably little change over those seven years. Uh, because the the principles were still there we still it already had comforts it had hardships and it had the the same moves so it uh some other things it had some other things that have just kind of like slowly been trimmed back i know this is kind of jumping ship a little bit but i always think of shadow of the colossus the the playstation game yeah as a, a video game as a really good example of cutting out what you don't need in game design because what the game did not need was a bunch of villages and a bunch of mooks Right. And so you just he, he the designer just erased them so that it's like a barren landscape and these titans. And that makes the theme uh, like of what you're doing feel so much grander. Totally. Yeah. Right? It's so much sharper. And so I I over playtesting and playtesting and playtesting every every couple of weeks, I think, what are what are people not using? Let's get let's get rid of it. And like if nobody's using this, I've got like three playtest groups. Nobody's using it it doesn't exist so let's let's keep uh narrowing it down narrowing it down narrowing it down what it ended up with was something that was pretty rules medium i think but i'm only saying rules medium because it's a learning curve because it's hard for people sometimes to adjust to diceless uh i still wouldn't call it rules light but but yeah so it's it's uh i think it's a pretty simple game everybody can learn it like at the table like if we go through one session of it you'll know the rules there's no there's no like uh there's not hidden depths to plumb but there's certainly implications uh, to go over in terms of what your character is uh, because i wanted to make it so that things like your training montage like your training routine becomes important because martial artists they spend most of their life training not actually fighting it's right? like the main part uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly so so i wanted to make that mechanically relevant and exciting and fun and and, and so people want to participate in that and uh so it it uh it's a very different experience than something like D&D and something like The Monk. So if you're at all dissatisfied with the D&D Monk, come over to my side of the fence uh, and back fight to survive. And if you really want James to get punched in the face almost as hard <laughs> as, as, as my friend, friend can. Kevin yeah. can. Yeah. <laughs> I think that about wraps it up. We've been talking for a while, and that is a thorough explanation, exploration of what a monk can be. I like getting into the training of it and the emotion of it, because these are all the things that the text of the player's handbook alludes to. But, you know, as you've been saying, if it's not in the game, if it's not something that is rewarded, then it is not something that is going to tend to come up without a lot of investment coming from the player independently. So that is, um, I'm definitely looking forward to playing it. I feel like the deck is kind of stacked in your favor, both because we're already friends and that we like your game. <laughs> so, you'll, you'll, say, yeah. you'll say any nice thing right now and then like yeah. walk away and be like, that guy, I don't know what he's on about. <laughs> but uh, thanks a lot. Where, where can people find you and where can people find the uh, Kickstarter? I guess Kickstarter.com is a good place to start, but you, I'm sure you've got some, uh, Kickstarter <laughs> is, say. yeah, yeah. Kickstarter is a good place, is a good place to go, uh, and search for fight to survive. I've also got a website, radiojamesgames.com. 
I, I have a development blog. Uh, I, I wrote it for me, so I have no idea if it makes any sense outside of me. Uh, but there is a development blog there that I was following, just like idle thoughts that I was jotting down as I went. Um, and uh, so that's RadioJamesGames.com. Uh, I also have a Radio James Games Discord and a Radio James Games Facebook group, and I haven't really decided which one is for what yet so i've kind of been doing everything on all three of them i'm not sure you can decide that uh, i think and, you just uh, wait, wait for the right wait for my audience to show up yeah <laughs> yeah oh but speaking of which and i know i'm i know we're at time but like i i'm pretty proud of myself i got my first angry rejection from a an otherwise interested backer across fa- facebook uh accusing me of wokeism and uh, <laughs> adhering to a uh like a some kind of leftist propaganda because you're not supposed to feel anything when you fight no I, th- I think it was because i suggested that i that i want part of the kickstarter funds are going towards a sensitivity reader i have bad news for you if you like anything published in 2022 well i mean especially this content is, is oh yeah uh, dude you know it's right it's ripe <laughs> it's ripe like like i don't I'm, I'm just one culture i can't make calls on all cultures like this <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want that responsibility, uh, you know, and, and like, I don't see what's so difficult about like, let's try not to be mean to people and, you know, not unrepresent, not misrepresent them. Like that's not a, that doesn't seem to be a big leap to me. Yeah. Especially uh, this genre, which has been historically, uh, we've, we've, we've discussed Rima Williams, uh, problems. And you know, the exotification and racism are not uh, that sometimes occurs within this genre is not exclusive to Western entries. Uh, you know, there's some wonderful, wonderful films, uh, Chinese Kung Fu films that I love that are also super racist, like uh, Master of the Flying Guillotine, for instance. Uh, is is a great film but it's supposed to be like a multinational fighting thing and and their caricatures of other cultures as a hong kong film are are you know pretty uh eye-opening uh so it it is a it is a, a genre that has been lazy with trying to label people uh and there's no reason why we can't learn from that when we're doing a game because you're in control of your table so it can be as sexist uh, like, I don't want to say it can be as sexist and racist as you want it to be, because it shouldn't be either of those things. <laughs> That's the but, but, quote. That's what I'm reading. <laughs> but uh, uh, it, it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. You don't have to carry those things forward. It's like people saying that, oh, it's like this D&D has to be sexist because it's like medieval. And I'm like, it's not even like medieval. Like, I'm, I don't even <laughs> know what medieval yeah, means. Yeah, it's not and it certainly doesn't have to be sexist. Like people saying the Game of Thrones needed to be sexist because it's more accurate. So, so you're willing to accept like dragons and like other fantasy things like like being exactly. able to shoot so, a fireball but you can't imagine the world being different in other ways yeah, yeah. exactly so yeah. let's let's establish good normative values um yeah. and that, that we acknowledge you're constantly we're constantly learning from but like let's establish some good normative values and the least i can do is get uh, a at least one i'm hoping for several sensitivity readers to go over the content and make sure that i'm not making a, a fool of myself to people who have uh in, in no way deserve to be uh to be fooled right but i got i got called out for my wokeism i was pretty proud of that as you should be 
Yeah, that's just a sign of success, really. Yeah, yeah no, so that's that's a that's a star, a gold star for my <laughs> for my binder. James, thank you so much for coming on. Well, thank you guys so much. I I just really I wanted to do this just so I could talk to you guys. You know? uh-huh. uh and and I'll encourage everyone to back my Kickstarter. I have no idea what I said tonight because I'm kind of tired. Uh, but uh, I hope it was coherent. And please edit it uh, with with great liberal grace. I will be ruthless. <laughs> be ruthless. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Good night, guys. All right. Until next time, we will get back to monsters at some point. Uh, in the meantime, uh, Wes, you usually end it. You say something. Uh, uh, monsters away. <laughs> Can I say the monsters are usually within us? <laughs> yeah. I think monsters away was better. I'm sorry. I ruined the moment. <laughs>